The book of Revelation is structured around four different visions throughout the book. The first vision started in chapter one. And in chapter one, we saw that Jesus came down to his apostle, John, who was exiled on the island of Patmos. And in chapter one, we saw that Jesus was walking among the seven churches of Asia Minor. Then in chapters two and three, we saw that Jesus had a message for each one of those churches. And that's what we've been looking at so far in the book of Revelation. But now we turn the page to Revelation chapter four, verse one, and we come to a second vision, a new vision, different than what we saw starting in chapter one. So let's take a look at this vision starting in chapter four, verse one. It says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. In the first vision, in chapter one, it's Jesus who comes down to earth to visit John. But now in this vision, starting in chapter four, John sees an open door into heaven and Jesus invites him to come up into heaven. And with that, John is transported into this, in the spirit into heaven where he sees God seated on the throne. Take a look at verses two and three. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance as an emerald. The first thing John sees when he is transported up into heaven is that he sees a throne and he sees that there is somebody sitting on that throne. And he tries to describe this person he sees on the throne. And, and he, he has to use words like the appearance of. He has the appearance of these precious jewels like Jasper and Carnelian. And, and he sees this, this rainbow around the throne, which he says looks like an emerald. And we can barely even imagine what it is that John is actually seeing. But what is important to note is not exactly the description of who is sitting on the throne, but the fact that it is the Lord God Almighty who sits on the throne in heaven. As we read in Psalm 103, 19, it says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. The, the vision of the throne is an important reminder to these seven churches who are facing persecution and it's a reminder that even though they're facing persecution, God still sits on the throne in heaven. And that no matter the chaos that we see in this world, we always can remember it is God who sits on the throne, ruling as the king in over all creation. After describing the throne, John then tells us what he sees around the throne, starting in verse four. Verse four says around the throne, were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of, of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. On the throne is, is the center of, of this scene. But then encircling the throne, John sees four other things. He sees 24 elders. He sees seven flaming torches. He sees a sea of glass, and then finally he sees four living creatures. 
And the commonality between all four of these things is that they are all there to reflect the glory of God back onto him. So we start with the 24 elders in verse four, and it says that they're clothed in white and that they have crowns on. Garments of white typically in the Bible signify purity and a crown usually signifies authority. So these elders have some kind of authority, but the number 24 itself has significance just by itself because throughout the revelation and in the Bible, the people of God are always represented by the number 12. We see this later in Revelation. In Revelation 21, verse 12, what John describes the heavenly city as it comes down, onto the he- comes down from heaven onto earth. And in John, Revelation 21, 12, it says, the city had a great high wall with 12 gates. And on the gates of the tw- are the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So when we see the 24 elders here, most Bible scholars say that this number 24 represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, meaning that these 24 elders represent all the people of God, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament era. Now, there is some disagreements amongst Bible scholars as to whether or not these 24 elders are human or angelic. Personally, I think the case for them being human is more compelling, but I could be wrong on that. But, but even if they are angelic beings, they are angelic beings who stand in and represent the people of God throughout the ages. Secondly, then, in verse 5, we see seven torches of fire. And, and John describes here this awesome storm cloud emanating from the throne, that there's flashes of lightning, there's, there's rumblings of fire, thunder. And amidst this, stor- this storm, standing in front of the throne, he sees seven torches of fire, which he tells us then represent the seven spirits of God. Well, if you remember, back in John chapter 1, verse 4, we also saw seven torches that represent the seven spirits of God. And Pastor Steve told us there that those seven spirits are not seven separate spirits, but rather the number seven signifies perfection or completeness. And so when we see these seven spirits of God, what we're seeing is he's speaking to the holy perfection of God's spirit. In other words, the seven torches represent the Holy Spirit. Third, we see in the first half of verse six, a body of water, which he says looks like glass or crystal before the throne. And that sea of glass is reflecting back the bright glory of God. And then finally, in the last half of verse six, and at the beginning of verse seven, we see John observe these four strange beings, which he just calls the living creatures. And his his description of these living creatures is really kind of bizarre. They're they're covered in eyes. They've got six wings and and each of them looks like a different creature. One of them looks like a, a lion. One looks like an ox. One looks like a man and one looks like an eagle in flight. But while these creatures may sound bizarre to us, John's descriptions here would be familiar to anyone who knows their Old Testament. And in particular, if they are familiar with the prophet Ezekiel. Because in Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of four living creatures who have the appearance of a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle. And even though Ezekiel's description of these four living creatures is somewhat different than what John describes here, you can't help but miss the connection that John is clearly using the Testament of the old language and he's using the language of Ezekiel to help describe what it is that he's seeing. But more important than what these living creatures look like is what these living creatures are doing. Because these living creatures are constantly proclaiming the holiness of God. 
Take a look at verse 8. In verse 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The purpose of these living creatures is to continually and without ceasing, day and night, proclaim the character qualities of God. And there's three particular character qualities of God that they're proclaiming. First, they proclaim that God is holy. To be holy means that God is utterly distinct and he's exalted over all of creation. Secondly, they declare that God is almighty. In other words, he's omnipotent. He's powerful. He can do and he can accomplish anything. And third, they proclaim that God is eternal. He exists equally in the past, the present, and the future. And he stands outside of time. And all moments of time are equally present to him. But of these three characteristics that we see, the one that is emphasized is his holiness. The word holy here is repeated three times, which grammatically makes it a superlative. See, God is not just holy. God is very, very, very holy. And this is not the only time that we see God's holiness declared in triplicate by angelic beings. Nearly seven centuries prior to the book of Revelation, the prophet Isaiah saw a similar vision in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6.1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. In both John and Isaiah's vision of heaven, it is God's holiness that is proclaimed first and foremost. Of all his character qualities, the one quality by which God wants to be most well known is his holiness. The, the living creatures here, they don't declare love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. They, they, they don't declare omniscience, omniscience, omniscience is the Lord God Almighty. No, they proclaim holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And because holiness is the attribute by which God most wants to be known, holiness becomes then that adjective by which all of God's other character attributes are modified. So yes, God is love, but it's a holy love. And God is just, but it's a holy justice. Yes, God is merciful, but it's a holy mercy. But what is holiness? How do we define this word? It's actually a very difficult word to define. It has a meaning of separateness, being separated, but it's a challenging word to actually understand. The theologian Don Carson, no relation, says this about holiness. He says, at its core, holiness is almost an adjective for God. God is God. God is holy. In that sense, there is only one being who is holy because there is only one God. In other words, when we say that God is holy, 
We are saying that God is utterly distinct from and exalted over his creation. We're saying that he alone is God. We are saying that there is nobody else like him. We are saying you are God and we are not. And that leads us to our first reason why we should worship God. We should worship God because he is holy. We worship God because he stands apart from and is exalted over all creation. We worship him because he is unlike anyone or anything else. And even if God had never done anything at all for us, he would still be worthy of our praise just because of who he is. See, we worship God, not just merely because of the benefits he gives to us. We worship God because he is holy. And so we worship God first and foremost by declaring his intrinsic attributes back to him. So what are the implications of this? How does that change our worship here at Ecclesia? Well, first of all, it means that if we are to properly worship God, we have to know what God is like. You can't declare his intrinsic attributes if you don't know what his intrinsic attributes are. And there are people who will tell you that that doctrine and theology and studying the Bible, that's not what's important. What's important is just worshiping God. That's the most important thing. But how can you worship God if you don't know anything about him? If you don't know who God is, how can you praise him for his character? People, theology must precede doxology. That means the study of God must proceed and come before the worship of God because you cannot worship somebody you do not know. Secondly, our worship needs to be focused on God and not on ourselves. Our worship should be a declaration of his greatness, of his goodness, not how I feel in the moment. The best worship songs are those songs which take our eyes off of ourselves and directs our hearts and minds towards the Lord. And it is so easy to make worship about us rather than about God. If we're honest, sometimes we enjoy worship, not because it gives us a glimpse of God's holiness, but because we just enjoy the experience of worship in and of itself. Let me again quote from Don Carson. He says, you cannot find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship and pursue God himself. One sometimes wonders if we are beginning to worship worship rather than worship God. It's a bit like those who begin admiring the sunset and soon begin to admire themselves admiring the sunset. Ecclesia, may we be a church that doesn't just worship the experience of worship, but who truly worships God because he is holy. Third and finally, we worship God for his intrinsic attributes. Worship is not based upon, therefore, our feelings or our circumstances or our environment. We worship God based upon his character. So no matter how I feel, no matter what went on this morning or what's going on in the world, we are called to worship because no matter what's going on around us, God is still on the throne. God is still holy and God still deserves our worship just because he is God. And that's why the four living creatures declare day and night without ceasing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, it's not just the four living creatures who are worshiping God. So we pick it up in verse nine. We now see that the 24 elders join in this worship Verse nine says, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne 
and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the thrones saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The elders here are declaring that God is worthy. Why? Because God is the creator. God is worthy of our worship because without him, we wouldn't even exist to give him worship. Our very existence is dependent on God because God made everything and nothing would exist except that he created it. Everything came into being because God wanted it to come into being. And everything only continues to exist because God wants it to continue to exist. God just didn't create the universe and then like it exists on its own, but rather the entire universe only exists because God chooses to sustain it at every moment. And if at any time God chose to stop upholding creation, it would perish in a second. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says it this way. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Which brings us to the second reason that we worship God. We worship God because he is the creator. We worship God because he is our creator, and therefore he is worthy to receive all of our glory, all of our honor, and all of our power. The 24 elders demonstrate God's worthiness when they take their crowns off and they lay them before the throne. There's a couple of reasons why somebody might wear a throne in the first century. First, a crown is given to people to honor them for some great accomplishment. So, for example, in the ancient Olympics, the victor wouldn't get a gold medal. Instead, they would get a crown. You know, it was normally like a, a, a laurel wreath, uh, but it was a crown that they put on their head. Another reason why you might wear a crown is that you were somebody with authority. So maybe you were a king or you were a governor. So casting their crowns before the Lord means that the elder, the elders were taking whatever glory whatever honor, whatever power they had, and they were giving it back to God because God is the one who is the originator of their glory, honor, and power. Now, you and I, we don't wear literal crowns. I don't see anybody in here with a crown on today, but we do all have our own little figurative crowns, don't we? Maybe it's a talent or a skill that we take pride in. Maybe it's a position of authority that, that we have. Maybe it's money or wealth that you've accumulated. And the question is, do we sit there with our little crowns and boast about how great we are? Or do we remove those crowns and put them before the Lord, knowing that he, as the creator, is the source of whatever glory, whatever honor, and whatever power we have? You see, worship is more than just singing songs to God on a Sunday morning. Worship is giving back to God what he has given to us. That's why every single Sunday when we come to worship, we don't just sing, but we also say, hey, you can give financially into give boxes or texting to the, to the number on the screen because giving financially is part of our worship. We're giving back that which God has given to us. And because worship involves giving back of our time, our ta talent, and our treasure, it's a way of saying, God, you are worthy of all of those things. In Hebrews 13, 15, it says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Did, did you catch that phrase? Offer a sacrifice of praise. When's the last time your worship cost you something? 
When does it cost you something? See, the, the word worship means literally to ascribe value, to ascribe worth to something. And when we give of our money or we give of our time or we give up our talent, what we're saying is God is worth that money. God is worth that talent and God is worth that treasure. And if we never give financially or we never give of our time to God, then you don't really think God is worth much. He is only worth a much to you as you're willing to give back to him. And does it say, look what it says here. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's why the elders cast their crowns before the throne singing, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, including those things that you have blessed me with. Well, as we turn now from chapter four to chapter five, we see the, the mood shift a little bit in heaven because now John sees starting in chapter five, that there's a problem. There's a problem in heaven. This, this dilemma has, has appeared in heaven. Let's take a look at this dilemma starting in chapter five, verse one. John says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming it with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John sees God, the father seated on the throne, holding a scroll that's sealed with seven seals. And as we will read in chapter six of Revelation, this scroll symbolizes God's plan for history. It contains God's plan for how it's all going to end and how it's all going to end for all people, either in judgment or in glory. But for God's plan to be revealed and carried out, someone must first come and break those seven seals so that the scroll can open up. And here's the problem. There is nobody there with authority to break open the seals. None of the heavenly beings that we've seen so far have that authority to reveal and execute God's plan. Not the four living creatures, not the 24 elders. In fact, it says in verse three, nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth have the authority to open up the scroll. So realizing this, John begins to weep. He cries because he senses that the church's hope is at risk because there is no one able to execute God's plan for history. And if God's plan for history goes undone, that means there's going to be no end to the persecution of the church. There's going to be no end to injustice. There's going to be no victory. There's going to be no hope that good actually wins over evil. But while John weeps, one of the 24 elders approaches him and says, there is somebody with the authority to break open the scroll. Take a look, starting in verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Who is it that can open the scroll? It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the root of David. He, he can open the scroll. The, the lion of Judah is a reference to Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, there's a man by the name of Jacob who passes on his a prophetic blessing to each of his 12 sons as they are about, as he's about to die. And the descendants of these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And when he comes to his son, Judah, he says this in Genesis 49, nine, he says, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. 
He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This prophecy is saying that the promised Messiah king is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, that the Messiah is going to come through the tribe of Judah, but not just the whole tribe, but one specific family within the tribe of Judah. That one particular family tells us, it tells us that the Messiah is going to come from the family of David. And we see this in Jeremiah 23, 5, where it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so then when we turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and we look at Matthew chapter one, we discover that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah and Jesus is a descendant of of David. So that in fact, this lion of Judah, this root of David is in fact, Jesus himself. But it's not his family lineage that gives him the authority to open the scroll. Because in verse 5, it says that the Lion of Judah has authority to execute God's plan for history because he has victoriously defeated his enemies. And so John turns to see this great conquering lion. He turns to see the descendant of the great warrior king, David. And what does he see? Take a look in verses 6 and 7. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw... A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. John is told that it's the victorious lion of Judah who's going to open the scroll. But when he looks, he doesn't see a lion at all. He sees a lamb and not just any lamb, a lamb who's been slain. This this should catch us by surprise. There should be an element of what's going on here? Where's the lion? Here we are at this great climatic moment. We're about to see revealed on stage this, this conquering lion whose authority and power is greater than the four living creatures, greater than the 24 elders, whose strength and glory gives him alone the power to execute on God's plan for history by breaking open the seals. And then just as the curtain opens, what do we see? Do we see a conquering lion? No, we see a lamb who has been vanquished. The Bible is filled with illustrations of a lamb who has been slain as a sacrifice. Probably the most important one is from the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we find the, the people of Israel enslaved by the Egyptians. And God uses his, shows his power over the Egyptian pharaoh by sending an angel to slaughter the firstborn son of everyone who is in Egypt. But the people of Israel will be spared if they sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it on their doorpost so that when the angel comes, they will pass over that household because the lamb has been slain in the place of that firstborn. Then 1500 years after that first Passover, Jesus arrives on the scene and he encounters John the Baptist. And as John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says something remarkable in John 1 29. It says the next day, he, John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is the most amazing thing about Christianity. 
Christianity teaches us that victory does not come like a lion who devours his prey, but victory comes from being a lamb who has been slain. You see, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll, not because he has mauled his enemies like a lion, but because he willingly gave up his life for us like the Passover lamb. It says in Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because each one of us has rebelled against our creator. And that rebellion has put us under a sentence of death. But Jesus came and he died in our place, taking that punishment onto himself so that we might be saved from death. And Jesus is worthy to open the scroll, not because of his might and his power, but because of his humility, because of his willingness to sacrifice himself, his willingness to lay down his life for you and me. As John Piper says, the lion gets victory through the tactics of the lamb. How different is that than what the world tells us about power? The world today says that strength is what makes you worthy. But Jesus shows us that it's weakness that makes us worthy. The world says that being bold and strong is what makes us winners. But Jesus shows us that no, it's humility. It's weakness that makes you the winner. That only by willingly giving up power and giving up of ourselves sacrificially will we be found worthy and will we be able to conquer Think about how the original readers of Revelation would receive this. Remember, they were being persecuted for their faith. They were powerless in society. They were outcasts. And Jesus is saying here, that's exactly what it takes to be a conqueror. Now, there's a few other things about this lamb that we should take note of. First of all, we see the lamb is standing. Well, slaughtered animals typically don't stand. uh, But so while the lamb bears marks of being slaughtered, he is now very much alive. And that's because Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead. Secondly, the lamb has seven horns. Horns symbolize power or authority in the Bible, meaning that the lamb is the one who is ruling as king. And third, the lamb, it says, has seven eyes, which we are told are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. This is another reference to the Holy Spirit, because after Jesus ascended into heaven, he is the one who sent the Holy Spirit to indwell God's people throughout all the earth. But most importantly, The lamb has taken the scroll from the one who is seated on the throne because only he is worthy to break open the seals and to execute God's defined decrees. And that's why the four living creatures and the 24 elders begin to worship him with a new song. Let's pick it up in verse eight. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The four living creatures and the 24 elders are each carrying a harp and they each are carrying a bowl of incense, which we're told represents the prayers of the saints. And I wish we had time to really unpack. What does that mean that 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 contains the prayers of the saints? What does it mean that our prayers here are illustrated as a sweet fragrance before the Lord? How might it change our perception of prayer if we understood how much God delights in our prayers? How How would our prayers change if we understood that God uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes? 
but I don't have time to talk about that. So instead, we want to focus in on what the worship of the lamb being, is being offered here for. Because in verses 9 and 10, we see the third reason why we should worship God. We should worship God because he is our redeemer. He's our redeemer. And the reason why the lamb is worthy to open the scroll is because, and execute God's final plan is because he has redeemed us. Another word for redeem is just to purchase. And it has the idea of purchasing a slave out of a slave market for the express purpose of setting that slave free. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. His blood was the purchase price where he has redeemed us from the slave market of sin and death. And he has set us free. But he's not just redeemed us from slavery, but he has also redeemed us to become a new people, a new people from every tribe, language, people, and nations. You see, God is not just the God of Israel. God is not just the God of America. His redemption will bring people from every nation and every ethnicity together to form a new people who will be citizens of a new kingdom under Christ the King. All the walls which divide us here on this earth are broken down in the redemptive work of Christ. All who are redeemed are now united as the people of God together. Therefore, our primary identity is not a political, social, or familial identity. Our identity is as the people of God who have been redeemed by the Lamb. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says it this way. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And we won't just be citizens or subjects of this new kingdom. Rather, verse 10 says that we have been made priests who will rule over the earth in this new kingdom. We worship Christ because he has redeemed us. He has purchased us from the slave market of sin. We worship Christ because he has redeemed us, a people from every nation, to become one new people for God. We worship Christ because he has redeemed us to become priests here and reign with him on the earth. So what are the implications of that for us here at Ecclesia when we worship? It means that our worship needs to be gospel-centered. The songs we sing, the words of praise that we offer should focus on the amazing work of redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross. Our songs should and praise should be focused on the blood of the lamb. Our worship should be saturated in the gospel. That when people come to Ecclesia, they should hear the gospel from our teaching. And they should hear the gospel from our singing. And they should hear the gospel in our kids' classes. They should hear the gospel when we're talking to each other in the hallway and drinking coffee together. They should hear the gospel in our outreach groups and in our communities and in our discipleship. Our, and everything that we do as this church should be saturated with the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is worthy and he's worthy because he ransomed people for God by his own blood. After this, the four living creatures and the 24 elders are joined in the worship by thousands of angels and eventually all of creation. Take a look, picking up in verse 11. It says, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, 
Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I don't know if you caught this or not, but there is a subtle shift in the object of heaven's worship in this passage. Because if you look at the first two songs of worship in chapter four, that worship is directed to the one seated on the throne. It's the Lord God Almighty who is the object of worship in chapter four. But then when you look at the first two songs in chapter five, the worship is directed to the lamb who was slain. But now, in this final worship song, in verse 13, something amazing happens. Because the worship is directed both to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Now together, the Lord God Almighty and Jesus the Messiah are being worshipped together as all creation declares that they are equally worthy of blessing and honor and glory and might. Which leads us to our fourth and final reason that we worship God We worship God because he is triune. He is triune. What does that mean that God is triune? I'm speaking here of the Trinity, that there are three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in essence, but three in person. And we see this triune God revealed here in this throne room scene in heaven, because it is God the Father who is the one seated on the throne. It is, it is God, the son, who is the lamb who was slain. And it's God, the Holy Spirit, who is the seven torches before the throne. And that triune God reminds us that we worship a God of community. That relationship is fundamental to his very nature. That while there is a diversity of persons within God, there is a unity of essence and purpose and will such that we can only say that there is one God. And the implications for our worship here is twofold. First, our worship should be blatantly Trinitarian. It should be blatantly Trinitarian. I love the song we sang when we first came in. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. That's the kind of song we need to be singing here because we worship Father, Son, and Spirit because all are God and all are equally worthy of our worship. But secondly, our worship should be communal because we worship a God of community. Therefore, our worship should be done in community as well. Because just as God is three persons coming together in unity, so our worship should reflect our diversity coming together and being united in worship. Now, it's not that we can't worship God alone, but if there's anything I learned during the pandemic, it's that there is nothing that can replace corporate worship as we all come together in one voice to praise God. And isn't that exactly what we see here? Did did you notice the progression of worship here throughout chapters four and five? It starts in chapter four, verse eight, with the four living creatures worshiping God. Then in chapter four, verse 11, they are joined by the 24 elders. And then in chapter five, verse 12, they are joined by thousands of angels. And then finally in verse 13, in this great triumphal climax, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them join together in the worship of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. And as that worship builds in chapters four and five, we are reminded that we worship God because he is holy. We worship God because he is the creator. We worship God because he is the redeemer. And we worship God because he is triune, father, son, and spirit. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray.